life is never ending. Whoa, is what I know. And I was like, what is that from? It's from the, the pro recording of the Shrek Broadway musical. I think you should open the episode with that. Welcome to the Who's Your Mommy podcast. My name's Grace. And I'm Abby. My pronouns are she, her. My pronouns are she, they. And we're both bisexual. With Virgo Venuses. And ADHD. And on this podcast, we talk about queer theory, bisexuality, feminism, and 2000s movies. And a little bit about being in our 20s. A whole host of other things. It's going to be fun. But before we get into it, let's just warn you that we do cuss a little and talk about PG-13 related shit on here. So just a heads up, before we get into our related crap, we are going to warn you. We may not tell you every time we're about to say the word fuck, but we will tell you every time we're about to get into some deep shit. So without any further ado, let's get into the shit, huh? <laughs> Okay, so I want to start this episode off in a very specific way. I'm going to ask you to be honest with me in a way that is fun and fresh. Me? You. Okay. Okay. Fuck, Mary, kill. Tulio, Miguel, and Chell. And you have to be honest. Fuck. You have to be honest with me. God. Because I know there is there's a politically correct answer to this. But both Miguel and Tulio, they are just screaming the boyfriend of a bisexual. Like, yeah. they're just giving off that vibe. And so I, I gotta know. Miguel is the blonde, correct? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna kill Miguel. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm not attracted to Miguel in any way, unfortunately. Although yeah. I do think he would be like a fun pal. A good buddy. A good buddy. Not interested mm. in fucking or marrying. Interesting. I don't trust Chell. <laughs> I've had sex with quite a few people I don't trust. <laughs> so I would say fuck her. Okay. And then marry Tulio. Gotcha. That's my final answer. Yeah. Okay. That's, I think that's pretty safe. I was very curious because I think that, well, we'll, we'll get into the Chell conversation mm-hmm. later in this episode. Chell is hot as fuck. Yeah. And like, I would fuck her like just 10 out of 10. But I, I was very curious about the boys because I have complex feelings about the boys. <laughs> I would probably, as a child, I had a huge crush on Miguel. Mm-hmm. I find in my adulthood that I'm more similar to Miguel than interested in Miguel. Mm. We're very similar. <laughs> I know we were watching the movie together and Grace and I were like, Who's Which, who? Who's who? Who's who? It kept switching. It kept switching. And then we were like, wait, Miguel is the one doing all the impressions and being silly on the guitar and like yeah. goofing around. That's Grace. I mean, really, the horse is like the best. The best. Yeah. I mean, the horse, they're all colonizers. <laughs> the horse is Cortez's horse. But. Yeah. But. Can we fault the horse for its owner? Can we fault the horse? Because the horse just kind of is chillin. The horse has got some priorities. Priority one, apple. Priority one, apple. Priority two, hang out. Uh, Yeah, just vibe. Literally (laughs) the horse is so cool. That's all the, that's all the horse cares about. Yeah. Altivo. Um, so anyway, if you haven't figured it out by now, we are talking today about the road to El Dorado. Woohoo! 
which is an extremely fun movie to talk about because there is so much to talk about. And I think I can personally say we probably won't hit every conversation point there is. Absolutely And this not. movie <laughs> goes so fucking deep. You can, I've read a few this week, a few like deep anthropological studies of this movie and a few like critical comparisons between this movie and some other movies of the time. And we'll, we'll touch on a lot of that. But like, let me just say, this movie, there's so much to talk about. And we are a one hour podcast. So, uh, oh yeah, you know, comment on social media. Let's keep the chat going. But yeah, we probably won't hit every point there is to hit on this movie. Because one, it's we talk a lot on this podcast about the cultural importance of shows, the nostalgic importance of different media. And then there's also like the history to talk about. Mm-hmm. And actually, both of our most recent episodes, episodes we're recording tonight, have a lot of history to talk about. Yeah. And Abby and I like history. So we kind of split up the two episodes we're recording tonight. So I did a bunch of research on Anastasia. Grace did a bunch of research on El Dorado. And we're going to kind of flip-flop. Yeah, and this is a format we're trying out. We're seeing if it works. Mm -hmm. I personally feel like we are at our best when we have come in with some fucking fist pumping research and energy and like i like feeling smart i like when you tell me smart things Mm -hmm. but it is a lot to for us both to research every movie and keep like a consistent recording schedule and also like actually know what we're talking about (laughs) yeah and i'm a great bullshitter so this is keeping me honest yeah um so it's easier for us to like if we're going to record two episodes at once, like one of us does all the research for one, one of us does all the research for the other, but we obviously both watch both movies. Yeah, so we both watched these movies. We actually watched El Dorado together, mm-hmm. which I was super excited about this because it's the first time we've actually done that since the first episode of the podcast. And yeah. for one of our opener episodes of our third season of the show, I just thought it was so fun to sit down and watch a movie together Yeah. Um, with Chase and Brandon, who are basically guest stars on the show. <laughs> They have to do zero work, and we just talk about them and their characters. I mean, um, they did a lot of work for us at the beginning, but now they're chilling. Now they're now they're Jay chilling. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, we love you. So, Abby, tell me about your history with this movie, and you know, when does it enter your your consciousness and your memories? I believe this movie enters my consciousness somewhere around middle school. I want to say. Because I don't remember, I'm sure I watched this movie as a kid, but I don't remember watching it as a kid. Mm -hmm. Because the first time I watched it was with a friend that I had in middle school. Like, my first conscious memory of watching Mm -hmm. it is with a friend I had in middle school. And she grew up to look exactly like Joe. Whoa. Yeah. And so we would always joke that, like, and she looked like Chell a little bit, like, when we were younger, too. And so mm-hmm. we, would all, we would always joke that, like, that was her. Um, and then, like, one of my other friends was Miguel and I was Tulio. Like, we would, like, Cute. do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I remember watching that movie a lot in middle school and just loving it and being obsessed with it. And then, like, not watching it again until, like, maybe five, eight years later. Wow. Yeah. I... I think I have seen this movie in terms of like amount of times I've seen a movie more than almost any other movie okay. in my life. And that is from my parents are musicians. This is not a new fact. Uh, they would have band practice every week. 
and we had a few DVDs, right? And Ruben, my little brother, and I would go watch movies in my parents' bedroom. They had a TV and a DVD player in there. And this was one of those movies. And we watched it, I think, every week. I think we were just like, why fuck with a good thing? Because the, the music, I have these vivid childhood memories of listening, jumping on my parents' bed to like the music of this movie, mm-hmm. um, which I was actually really, really excited when I found out. So the act- the composition team of this is Elton John, Tim Rice, and Hans Zimmer, and they brought, it's the exact same team who did The Lion King. Oh, the exact wow. same trio. And they've done a lot of other things as a team, and Elton John and Tim Rice are, because Elton John writes music, he does not write lyrics. Mm-hmm. Tim Rice is a lyricist who works with him a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, oh, of course it's just as fucking good as The Lion King. Like, this is such good. They're such fun songs. And you can't find them anywhere. Mm-hmm. I haven't been able to find them on Spotify. Like, it's tough to be a god. <laughs> Classic. Literally, that's such a fun song. It's so good. It's so stupid. The whole soundtrack is incredible. It's it's just really phenomenal. And so I think the music is the thing that permeated the deepest for me. Mm-hmm. I also had crushes on Miguel and Tulio. I was big into them. And like, yeah, chow, but I really remember thinking Miguel was hot. <laughs> and in adulthood, I'm like, I cannot imagine having to spend all day every day with Miguel. But, you know. Yeah. Everybody grows. Um, do you know who Jeffrey Katzenberg is? No. So we've talked about him a little bit on the show before, but Jeffrey Katzenberg was an executive producer at Disney. He ran Disney Animation for quite some time in the 80s. Um, There's a really famous story of him on The the Black Cauldron, which I'll make you watch at some point for this show. It'll maybe have to be like a weird Halloween bonus because (laughs) it's not from the early 2000s, nor is it very gay, but it's it's really weird. (laughs) And it was important to your childhood. Well, well. Well, it's just mostly weird. Like, I just okay. also remember thinking, like, huh, it's weird. My mom loved it, though. Okay. Um, and this movie, The Black Cauldron, Jeffrey Katzenberg kind of famously just literally destroyed some of it. Like, he watched his test screening and went in and, like, tore, tore film out of the, the reel and, like, destroyed part of the movie. He, like... It was kind of his big last hurrah at Disney. Mm-hmm. But he was he was part of what made Disney animation the capitalist giant that it became during what they call the Disney Renaissance. Yeah. And then he left Disney and went to DreamWorks and was behind Prince of Egypt and was behind, um, he was behind El Dorado. And he kind of was like, I want to move away from the princess narrative. I want movies for the boys. Mm-hmm. Prince of Egypt is a masterpiece. Oh yeah. We'll delve into it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't grow up Christian, so I had no fucking clue what was going on in that movie (laughs) or that it was religious. I was like, it's like the little drummer boy for me. It just went right over my head. (laughs) I also was like, how did people exist before Jesus? How? What? What? (laughs) I was literally like, I don't fucking get it. Like, so anyway, (laughs) more on that another time. But Jeffrey Katzenberg was the, the executive producer of El Dorado. And his approach to this movie was that he really wanted to create a, a buddy film mm-hmm. that was uh, following the, the sidekicks 
of a main movie, mm-hmm. like just follow them for a feature film. Ah, uh, yes. And, Let's uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes, it's actually a he. It's hugely inspired by this um, series of, well, um, not Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, Abbott and Costello. Ooh. And the Abbott and Costello adventures really, really played into the inspiration for Eldorado. It's like, what if we center the funny guys? Mm-hmm. You get this. Um, you mix in a heavy dose of uh, fantastical American history and you just get, yeah, Elton John, I mean, it's fine. Yeah. Like, just smear some Elton John on top and it's okay. What a perfect potion. I guess, yeah. I mean, it's still... Like, it doesn't make sense how well it came together. Like, it's such a weird combination of things. Well, and I watched this movie, and I can't believe it's 23 years old. Yeah. Like, I just... There are parts of it where I'm like, oh, gosh, like, aged weird. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the way we talk about American colonialism is really different now than it was in 2000. But the movie, by and large, does not feel 23 years old Mm -mm. when you watch it. And it's funny. It's still really fucking funny. (laughs) (laughs) And that bugs me. Um... It also bugs me that that Tulio has an American accent and Miguel has an Aussie accent. I would love some backstory there. Well, it's just Kenneth Branagh and um, the other actor. Yeah, I just want them to like make something up, you know? Mm-hmm. Like an origin story. How did they meet? <laughs> Tulio's Basque. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, um... Major takeaways. What, what are your thoughts on the movie? I have a lot to say, but... My major takeaways are... I I remember it being a little bit of, like, the first time for me that I experienced colonialism being the bad guy. Yeah. Like, it was kind of my first exposure to that because I grew up in such a, like, conservative Christian environment that was, like, Columbus was the good guy and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so it was one of my first, like, exposures to... Columbus was not a good guy. Well, and I think because by and large, when we were growing up, we still celebrated Columbus Day. Yeah. And it's kind of gone. It seems to be closer to gone. Now. I hope it's gone. Like, I, I haven't... They don't observe it in school the way they did when we were kids. And, mm-hmm. like, I don't even think they really do, like, the think the first Thanksgiving. At least in our school district. Oh, I'm sure they do at the school I went to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on this Thanksgiving, Brandon's grandmother read us a book about Squanto at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I know. I was like, oh, sweet fuck. That is rough. (laughs) Um, But it is, it frames colonialism in a really scary way. I read, I read some really, really interesting anthropology papers about this movie because there's actually a lot of, uh, a lot of study done on it and critical analysis done on it because of, um, it's placement in time mm-hmm. it came out the same year. Guess, guess the movie when I say it. It came out the exact same year as another maybe forgotten classic with a queer icon taking place in Latin America. Animated. I have no idea. Came out the same year as The Emperor's New Groove. No way. Yeah, it came out within a few months of The Emperor's New Groove. That's crazy. So Disney and... Um, DreamWorks were working on these movies at the same time. And so I read this amazing paper and um, it's called Brave New America's Historical Reinterpretation in Disney's Emperor's New Groove and DreamWorks is The Road to El Dorado. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will throw the name in as soon as I can find the writer's name. I've been (laughs) looking for it. But they're um, 
PhD student in um, UK studying American studies. Mm -hmm. And this paper, one of them that I read, is basically about how do we interpret this one, how did it happen that we had this media, these two huge pieces of like major money media Mm -hmm. that they poured a lot of money, both studios poured a lot of money into marketing Spanish language Mm -hmm. campaigns of them. So in like Latin America, they were pouring money into marketing these films to an international audience. And how do we interpret the fact that both of those came out in 2000? Yeah. There's some really interesting uh, rhetoric I read about also. Just like now, in 2000, America was really at odds with itself about our um, uh, our southern border and immigration across our southern border. So at the same time as we're making these movies about, like, how horrible colonialism is and how, like, um, we're depicting all of these cultures in kind of fantastic fairy tale ways, mm-hmm. but we're also totally at odds with other cultures yeah. and immigration. And so a lot of the anthropological studies, and I won't get into all of them, are just kind of looking at what is, what are we supposed to pull from these movies yeah. when we're interpreting them through a current lens and through a lens of the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and one huge thing is looking at, with animation, do you judge an animated film based on the messages it is trying to give to its target audience or the messages it ends up giving to the broad audience. Mm-hmm. So, with children, which were in 2000, like now, now we have movies like Inside Out and we have movies like um, Soul, which are very much marketed to older audiences, more mature audiences, and are still animated features. Yeah. Animation was very much a children's medium in 2000. Mm-hmm. And, and when, you're, when you're doing that, you're trying to set forward um, lessons for children. Yeah. Right? The unique thing about both these movies is they have a lot of adult humor in them. Oh, yeah. So one could posit that they were they were marketed towards a family audience and not a children's audience. Mm-hmm. So with a movie like fucking Beauty and the Beast, where it is clearly for children, mm-hmm. you don't need to pull, you don't need to think about the French Revolution, yeah. even though it takes place in pre-revolutionary France, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, because it's for children, mm-hmm. because it's imaginary. Yeah. Like, that's the backdrop of the movie. It's not the context. Whereas with these movies, it is the context and the backdrop. Right. Especially Road to El Dorado contextualizes it. Yeah. They're like, we're going to have Cortez as a little literal character. Mm-hmm. And like, you don't make Cortez a character without intending for it for a broader audience than just children. Mm-hmm. And so some people are like, it's a kid's movie. Don't read into it like that. Don't read into the, the, the political and the cultural and the colonial. It's for kids. Mm-hmm. The more I researched, the more I found that wasn't true, though. This movie yeah. was in... <laughs> when they were animating, it was meant to be PG-13. The oh. entire animation team thought it was going to be PG-13. They signed the actors on thinking it was going to be PG-13. There were sex scenes, like oh. steamy scenes, which I'm like, why would... The more I read about it, the more I'm like, how did you think this was going to be an animated film? Yeah. Like, it blew me away. Especially in that like time in our culture like there are adult animation films today right but at the time that wasn't necessarily a thing like that was a pretty new concept at the time right and a lot of people on reddit think that they were like it was originally gay like scooby-doo yeah (laughs) where they're like originally daphne and velma were a couple and and that does appear to be true for Mm -hmm. the scooby-doo live action movies but for this one like it was really fucking dark in their first there's one um 
this amazing review I read of it called The Rocky Road to El Dorado, and it's a review that came out in 2000. Mm -hmm. It basically posits that it's a good movie to see as long as you're willing to talk to your kids afterwards about how the conquest actually went, and the fact that Cortez wasn't stopped by two white guys, like, killing a cave. Like, Cortez went on to commit genocides. Like, if you're willing to have that conversation, it's a good movie to go see. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in this review, they talk about in one of the original storyboards, Miguel dies and is like paraded through the city on a, propped up on a horse so that he can look like he's still alive. Like he's oh a my god. god. Yeah. What? Fucked up shit. Oh, and there's like all these steamy scenes with Chow. And so clearly production was a mess yeah. on this movie, but I'm curious how you feel about, do you think El Dorado is more of an adult movie or more of a kid's movie? I I feel like it's a kid's movie. It was supposed to be a kid's movie, but it turned out to be an adult movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's kind of flipped of what they originally wanted to do. Like, they originally wanted an adult movie and got a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. But when they made the kid's movie, they also made an adult movie, if that yeah. makes sense. Because, like, most of the humor, I would say, would go over a kid under the age of 10's head. Right. Well, most of it went over my head. The, the one yeah. where they pop up and, like, she's like, oh, my gosh, what would they say if they caught me like this with a god? And he's like, lucky god. Yeah. That that totally went over my head as a kid. Yeah. All of it. I was like, oh, she's hot. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I read there's, I do think with the character of Chell, the animators worked really hard. They were really, really intentional about wanting to create, like, a full-bodied, curvy, woman Mm -hmm. and they got a lot of flack for sexualizing her because Mm -hmm. you have to remember this movie came out pretty close to aladdin and pocahontas which were both really heavily criticized for the fact that their princesses were so sexualized compared to white princesses which Mm -hmm. i would agree it's fucked up and i think at the same time they were like but we we wanted to make her like a different body type than a Disney princess. We didn't over-sexualize her. She's just confident and curvy. Hmm. And it makes me think. I'm like, yeah, but she's really sexualized. Yeah. <laughs> like. I just don't feel like that really makes up for it. No. Like, I just can't. She's the only woman in the movie. Like, if I was the animators at that point, I would just be honest about it. I would be like, Yeah. Sorry. Or, and I don't know how much is like, okay, Rosie, I think it was Rosie Perez who did the voice of Chell. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm wrong about that, I'm so sorry. And I will correct it in the, in the comments. I don't have it. I don't have it in front of me, but she, I don't know how much was her voice performance because when you're animating like that, you are sometimes like animating to the performance mm-hmm. and maybe she just like laid on that sex appeal and they were like, give us more. Like, yeah. but I kind of feel like, at some point, they were just like, you know, it would be hot <laughs> if we made her curvy. Um, and, and sure, like, 2000 was, like, the age of the Twiggy model, and, like, it was against the modern beauty standard. Yeah. And Disney princesses are kind of known to be extremely reflective of the styles and sensibilities and beauty standards of their time. Yeah. So in that way, Chell is different. Mm-hmm. Chell also does not wear pants. Never. Not once Never. in the movie. She wears a loincloth. Yeah, that's it. You go, girl, but... But you know who's awesome and who this essay doesn't really talk about is Pacha's wife in Emperor's New Groove. 
I love her. She is a baddie. She's the first pregnant character in a Disney film. Really? That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Good for her. Yeah. I'm obsessed with her. <laughs> I love she's her. She's so cool. I think she's voiced by um, Susan Egan. Looking that up right now because I don't want to be wrong about that. I don't know how you come up with names off the top of your head. I literally have no idea who anybody is ever. <laughs> Grace is Googling. John Goodman was in this movie. I forgot about that. Yeah. He's, um... It's not Susan Egan. I got excited. Well... Never mind. <laughs> um, I think we get, as an animator and as a creator, you get to choose who you put in your movies. Yeah. You were creating a buddy animated film about pre-colonial Latin America in 1619 on the cusp of Cortez. Like, like you could have just done something different. Yeah. And one thing that this study... Um, the Brave New America that I read talks about is it posits that the road to El Dorado is more bold Mm -hmm. in what it tries to do because it tries to show the clash of two cultures Mm -hmm. where it is a lot easier to depict a culture if you are not also depicting white culture, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mulan, it's a lot easier for us to accept that Mulan is good representation of Chinese culture Mm -hmm. because we are not comparing it to our our culture Mm -hmm. right when you introduce a quote-unquote more familiar culture Mm -hmm. to a story you are running the risk of infantilizing and making fun of and poking fun at the culture you are representing right yeah so hercules is a great example because there is so much reference to American culture in that movie because Greek culture is unfamiliar and they're trying to pause it to their audience, Mm -hmm. right? What The Emperor's New Groove tries to do is less bold because it's not trying to depict two cultures, right? No, yeah. And El Dorado is is depicting a very real clash of two cultures. The culture of El Dorado is a mix of the Aztec, the Maya, and the Inca but they did do a lot of research. Like, I do believe that these creators tried really hard to depict something authentic, mm-hmm. though they did not pick one thing to be authentic to. Yeah. What animated movie has. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Moana didn't either. Neither did, like, Mulan. Like, they did. They worked hard, though, to do their best. Yeah. And I do really respect El Dorado for trying really hard to depict a somewhat real event mm-hmm. and getting it wrong because Emperor's New Groove just depicts one culture mm-hmm. and kind of fudges the line yeah, really hard and fantasizes the Inca culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that like Cusco is named after the capital of yeah. the Inca <laughs> empire. <laughs> like um, I don't think either is the wrong approach, mm-hmm. but I do think somehow the more fantastic approach has aged better Mm -hmm. because you're suspending disbelief so much more than they do in the road to El Dorado. Yeah. 
I don't know. I'm so interested in the, the cultural weight of this as the, the me who was an anthropology major when she started college was like, holy shit. Yeah. I will, I will say the one thing that I respect about both of these movies is that they portray these cultures with such beauty. Yeah, like the they're animation gorgeous. is beautiful and you feel like you're in this world and there's like golden sunshine and like the rain in Emperor's New Groove is very distinctive to me. Mm-hmm. Like I just love the way that they animate the surroundings. Yeah, and as a child it did make me feel like I had learned about a different culture even mm-hmm. though that was a made up culture. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if that's good, but I do think it's beautiful. And so Abby's really good about always coming up with a thesis when she's kind of leading an episode. And so I tried really hard to come up with a thesis on this movie. Mm -hmm. But every I kind of bounced off of all my research where I was like, I don't know if this movie's aged well or not. Mm -hmm. I still love it. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know if I can say this movie's aged well because I think they did a pretty good job. But if it came out now, I would also be like, eh. Yeah. You did fine. The music's good. Mm-hmm. Or like now we live in a world where we've had the Avatar movies by James Cameron, mm-hmm. and you cannot argue with the fact that our generation, and specifically the millennial generation, I think, is really into like the white man going into another culture and somehow fitting in better with the culture than the other members of that culture. Yeah, that it's called the the mighty whitey trope. Oh, good. Yeah, which I love. <laughs> what a great name for it. But then like. The benevolent white man has to protect the mm-hmm. culture from other white people, basically solving a problem that wouldn't exist without him. Yeah. Like, Cortez wouldn't have found El Dorado if Miguel and Tulio hadn't found El Dorado. They yeah. created the problem first, <laughs> and then they had to fix it. So I can't, I can't really say they're heroes, right? Mm-hmm. But that's okay. So here's my thesis. Okay. Here's my thesis. And this is something I'm going to carry with me through this season and it may turn out to be wrong because sometimes I'm wrong. Like the the entire Hex Girls episode when I said the wrong name, sometimes I'm wrong, but I think I have some, I'm onto something here, which is that you are allowed to feel nostalgic for something that has grown to be problematic. Mm -hmm. You are not allowed to defend it based on the fact that it's a classic. That's where it becomes not okay. Ah, but you are allowed to feel like, because I was like, I love The Road to El Dorado, mm-hmm. but I also see that we are playing with some really harmful tropes. We are playing with some potentially harmful depictions of like native cultures and historical events, not as they happened. Mm-hmm. Treating historical events like fairy tales may not be healthy mm-hmm. when our culture is so obsessed with escapism. Mm, so I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So what I wrote is that you're allowed to... One sec. You're allowed to feel nostalgic and even loving towards media that has grown to be problematic over time. That said, but it's classic is not an appropriate response when someone voices concerns about problematic content. Mm -hmm. Here's some citations. The movie Holiday Inn. I was just in a production of White Christmas. Okay, that is literally my mom's favorite Christmas movie. And every year we sit down and watch it and she's like, don't, like, you can't think about this movie as if it's like, there's no issue with it at all because there are so many issues with it. Yeah. Well, Holiday Inn is especially glaring. Yeah. Um, but it is an extreme example. People still sit down and watch it every year. Mm-hmm. One thing that I, I saw, and I, I wish I remember the creator who posted about it, is that pulling out 
all the racist content mm-hmm. from thing that things that were made before cinema had decided that wasn't okay anymore mm-hmm. might not might not be the best way to approach it because mm-hmm. then it becomes people's favorites before they realize the full extent of what the film is saying. Yeah. Um, or movies like Pocahontas. I know lots of people love Pocahontas. But if someone is like, I think Pocahontas is super problematic, you can't just be like, yeah, but Just Around the Riverbend's a great song. Yeah, that's not an appropriate response. Both can exist. Yeah. You can love that song. Mm-hmm. You can also acknowledge that it sucks that it wasn't sung by an indigenous performer. Yeah. Or, personalized example, I'm Romani, Esmeralda. Mm -hmm. I adore her. I adored her as a child. Mm -hmm. But that movie's super problematic and I don't love it. Mm -hmm. That said, I have a friend who's Latina who dressed up as Esmeralda for Halloween one year. She messaged me about it. She's like, do you think it's okay? Like, I'm kind of dressing up as your culture. Mm -hmm. And if you did that, I wouldn't be okay with that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I was like, yeah. Except Esmeralda means a lot to you. She was like the first brown woman you ever saw stand up for herself mm-hmm. in a movie. Like, Esmeralda can mean a lot to you and mean a lot to me. And we can acknowledge that Disney dropped the ball yeah. on the representation of my culture. Mm-hmm. Those can all exist at once. And especially because on this podcast we deal in nostalgia, I think we have to be comfortable with the nuance. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically what I pulled from El Dorado. <laughs> I love that thesis. I'm so proud of you for that thesis because that is, I would not have come up with that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks one semester of anthropology school. <laughs> you did me good. I, I've been doing a lot of, um, for my UX classes, which is user experience, I do UX research for some of my classes, which a lot of UX research is rooted in anthropology and ethnography. Um, and... I have found it really interesting to dive into the world of anthropology through the UX lens. And so I also find it really interesting to dive into the world of anthropology through like a nostalgic, like media uh, interpretation of like the world around us, you know, two different lenses, but also like both very fascinating to me. I had a professor once tell me that you can learn a lot about societies from when they start to create art. Mm-hmm. Like, when, when is the first, like, real art dated back in human history? Mm-hmm. That aligns almost perfectly with when, as humans, we, we started agriculture mm-hmm. and had time to make art. Yeah. And, like, what, do, what we create and the media, especially the media we show our children, mm-hmm. says so much about us. Yeah. Um, I grew up in an Eastern European family. Some of those Eastern European myths are literally, like, don't fucking die. Don't get killed by the chicken witch in the woods. Like, and, and you know what? Like it's a scarcity culture. That's what they needed to teach their kids to survive. Mm -hmm. And, and I think this lens is so interesting to me because we've lived at the easiest fucking time to be a human ever. Yeah. So now what are the lessons we teach our kids? Mm -hmm. I definitely think that this working on this podcast in general has made me think a lot about like, what am I going to show my kids? Right. Like, what movies am I going to let my kids watch? What movies am I going to be like, mm, maybe maybe not that one. What am I going to pass on? Yeah. What movies am I going to tell my kids, this was my favorite movie when I was your age? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it's like, yeah, my, my parents have different views on what's appropriate. Mm-hmm. And even, like, Brandon's parents and my parents showed us different things when we yeah. were kids. I never watched Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. But I have seen... 
every fucking cartoon, obscure cartoon and Wes Anderson movie. Mm -hmm. And what does that say about our priorities when we're teaching young people? Mm -hmm. I talk about this a lot. When I was a teacher, I had four students. Two were Hispanic and two were white. And I think all four will likely wind up queer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, and one had a, had queer parents and one had queer older siblings. Like they were very, very finger on the pulse of the queer community, which was amazing for me mm-hmm. as a, at that point I was still not out of the closet, but pretty gay teacher. <laughs> um, so one of them, she was so obsessed with all of the lesbian ships in cartoons. And I was like, I cannot believe there are so many lesbian couples in cartoons. That was not a thing that when we was, were kids. I, have, I still I have a podcast where I make up the fact that characters are gay. Yeah. Because, but there's not, like, even, like, like, there just wasn't that. Mm-hmm. And so now that we exist in a time where that, like, we, I will be raising my kids in a time where that exists. Yeah. And in a time where you could be reading, like, a dystopian fantasy novel and, oh, hell yeah, gay. And, like, I will watch media that comes out now that has queer characters in it and i will be shocked yeah i'm still surprised and like not because i'm like mad about it obviously i'm not mad about it it's because i'm like wait this is allowed right (laughs) right or like i i remember when i would read books and when i was younger and there'd be queer characters and i would feel like uncomfortable Mm -hmm. i'd be like ah is that okay is that allowed because and i i guess i still have those feelings residing in me Mm -hmm. of like this is gay yeah (laughs) it's inappropriate (laughs) And, and I don't know, I think as messy as Miss Jojo Siwa is, like, mm-hmm. also having creators for young people mm-hmm. who are queer, it's not a thing we had. No. When we were growing up. When I was in middle school, my queer icon was Cara Delevingne. Because she was the only person that I knew of and liked and thought was cool who came out as queer when I was like during my middle school lifetime yeah I don't know anything about what Cara Delevingne is up to now I also remember like I remember learning Haley Kiyoko was a lesbian Mm -hmm. and just being like what yeah lemonade (laughs) mouth (laughs) the girl really (laughs) like in a good way and also in kind of an internalized homophobia way I think Mm -hmm. where I was like I can't believe that yeah um and it's just interesting when you look at the wider lens of all the media we had growing up, mm-hmm. where when we were kids, it was revolutionary to have Chell be fucking curvy. Yeah. Eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> and now, like, now I, I have hope. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to a lot of the internalized homophobia that we have, like, even now. Like, yeah. we are fully formed queer adults with like lives and partners and friends and family and community that we love and queer community but we still have that feeling in our hearts of like is this allowed it gets like built in (laughs) yeah and it gets scary and i i really hope that i if i have children i get to raise my children without that built-in fear yeah i even read a book and a few months ago and i was like ah, why is this book kind of freaking me out? And I think it might have been too gay for me. And I was like, what the fuck? You have a queer theory podcast. Yeah. Like, why is this, in, why is this, and it's not our fault. Mm-hmm. Internalized homophobia is not your fault. No. <laughs> and I don't think it gets talked about enough. No. 
Or the fact that, like, it's just okay. And yeah. you can move, like, you can just be growing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really weird. I also, like, we live in a, we live in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Anyway. There is that. Kind of de- depressing note. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally agree. There was something I said earlier that you were like, I have something to say about that. What was that? I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Might have been about infantilizing the other cultures. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to talk about in our Anastasia episode. Oh, word. A lot about um, Disney and the way that Disney, like, fantasized real, like, real life events. events. Um, but specifically I'm going to talk about it in the context of Anastasia. So depending on which episode comes out first, we're probably going to let you guys vote on it. Yeah, that's up to you. So you either may have heard that episode already. You might be waiting for that episode. I'm a big, I mean, I'm, I'm Eastern European as (laughs) all fuck. And so, um, specifically like Northeastern European, Mm -hmm. like my family's from Czechoslovakia, have Ukrainian like mm-hmm. Romani. So I know a lot about Russian history. <laughs> and and if you haven't listened to that one and it's out, you should listen to it. And if it's not out yet, I'm sounding pretty silly. I'm going to do I'm going to do my best, my absolute best to summarize the end of the Romanov line. Oh, and that's it's it. So we're good. not we're not going to do any more Russian history because that is enough. The <laughs> Romanov line was a 300-year dynasty. Yeah. Like Anyway, 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 um, another, another thing, last thing I really want to hit mm-hmm. is the question that made me want to talk about this movie in the first place. Mm-hmm. And this is a can of worms that we will get into in some other episodes too. Yeah. Are Miguel and Tulio queer or best friends? Can we look at them as like, that's kind of gay or can we look at them as nice male friendship? What do you think? I would like to raise the question, why can't it be both? Yeah, fair enough. Like, I feel like when we see them in this period of their lives, they are obviously not, like, queer lovers at that point in time. But I would love to pretend that they go off and they have their adventures, and someday in the future, when they're old, older... They discover their love for each other. Yeah. Like, that would be my happy ending for them. Something Brandon and Chase, Brandon or Chase, one of them brought it up was that, like, if any time you see an intimate male friendship, you say, that's That's gay. gay. (laughs) That's a gay couple. Um, You're kind of further erasing intimate male friendship friendship from, like, our media conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, men and, and people who present as masculine, like, Need to be allowed to have, like, friendships that yeah. are, like... I, I just think femme-presenting people somehow have gotten away with having this kind of friendship that's been demonized in for men. Mm-hmm. And that's so sad to me mm-hmm. because, like... I don't know. I can't imagine not having you and Talia to mm-hmm. talk to about. And not having an element of, like, emotional vulnerability with my friends. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of specifically men's friendships mm-hmm. do not get that. Yeah. And that makes me sad. Yeah. I think it's really important. I mean, I've every male partner I've ever had has struggled with male friendship. Mhm. And so it it has to be all of them, right? 
it, like it statistically sure seems like like it sure them. seems like it's most men well and i feel like you and i abby aren't going out dating the most like frat boy masculine no. dudes like brandon's a, one of the most emotionally intelligent vulnerable mature people i know yeah and, and i would say the same about all of the men i've dated have been very, very emotionally mature yeah well yeah and they just like are somehow not culturally allowed to have like mm-hmm the same kind of vulnerability with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not, it's not all men. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I know, I see you. I see some of you who have built this, but I would also say, like, how easy was that? Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, it, it makes me sad. I would love to ask the question to our listeners. I don't know if anybody will actually answer this or, like, DM us or anything like that. I would like to ask, what can the female queer community do to support male friendship you know what yeah, I mean yeah like what can we do to help <laughs> yeah because I don't know I feel silly like setting our boyfriends up on play dates mm-hmm. but also like I, if I've had a bad day I t- you know yeah and then I see like men I love mm-hmm. having bad days and just I'm the only one who knows and yeah. that's like I can't be your only support system. Mm-hmm. That's not healthy for humans. And like, I, I feel like this is a community that like, we're not a part of. We are queer women. Yeah, That's our community. We're queer femmes. <laughs> we're queer femmes. That's our community. These are just any man, any man. Yeah. We do not fit that description. So I would like to know, like genuinely, I would love to yeah, know. I agree. How can we support male friendship? Like, what are the things that we can do to start making that cultural shift? Because I just think it's important, like, we talk about this a lot. I have a deep feeling inside that I will be a mother of three daughters. <laughs> but but plenty of people see that differently for me, so we'll see. But, like, I could see, I would love to be a mom of, like, a little boy, you mm-hmm. know? But I want to, I don't want him to grow up without emotional mm-hmm. support. Mm-hmm. It just makes me sad. And we have a friend who's, who's having, having a, a son. boy. Yeah. Soon. What can we do? What? Tell us. <laughs> We're the gay aunties and we need help. Yeah. <laughs> help a gay auntie out. I've self-dubbed myself Auntie Grace. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon's mom goes, you're going to be an uncle. And he goes, don't say that. <laughs> ah. <laughs> but I like it. Mm-hmm. And I just think, and that's not just like, also just not. It's not just for, like, queer mask-presenting people. It's, like, all dudes. Mm-hmm. All men. I feel like most of our mask-presenting listeners are queer mm-hmm. in some facet. I don't know that that's true. You don't know? I don't know that for sure. I don't know much about our audience, but <laughs> all the dudes who tell me they listen to it are, are queer friends. Yeah, I have. I think a couple of my friends who are men who listen to it are straight. Dear audience. Dear audience. Who are you? <laughs> Turns out we know very little about the listens on our on our New Year's episode. I'm like, who is that? And mm-hmm. I was like, Brandon, have you listened to the episode? He's like, no. And I was like, who listened to this? <laughs> and then I immediately feel self-conscious of everything I've said. Also, we don't have enough Instagram followers yet to get like our demographics. So I genuinely, I don't know who y'all yeah, are. Yeah, either tell us who you are or tell your friends to follow us or both. Yeah. Help. <laughs> <laughs> but mostly help us figure out how we can support men in our life having friendships mm-hmm. so that's important yeah mostly i really i really love miguel and tulio if they're lovers that's super good but mm-hmm. if they're friends 
That's also super That's really good. exciting because yeah. the buddy comedy is built on male friendship mm-hmm. and why is that so culturally weird if it's something we love in media? Yeah. Tell me why. All right. Who's the mommy? Who's the mommy? The horse. Oh. We can't keep making horses mommies <laughs> because it's going to cause issues for us down the road. <laughs> Because we're going to be horse, like, we're going to, it's going to be like Catherine the Great, (laughs) who they accused of fucking horses. No. She did not. She had a lot of dildos, though. (laughs) You go, girl. I did not know that fact. Thank you. Yeah. um, The horse is a mommy. I think the chief is a mommy. I, okay, that's my final answer. Mm -hmm. I'm going with the chief. I just... The chief knows exactly what's happening the whole fucking movie, yep. and he just lets it play out. Mm-mm. And I love that about him. 10 out of 10. Also, the armadillo. Yeah. Ooh. Can we make a fan edit of the armadillo? <laughs> yes. It's I more, don't... it's not like a, it's not a can we as, I'm asking permission, more of like a skill thing, but you know. I, I don't know that I have the skill for that, but I will do my best. Brandon. 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 Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Goodbye. Bye, guys. Anything else we need to say? Um, thanks for listening. Follow us on our Instagram at whosyourmommy.pod. Oh, yeah. If you liked this episode, also rate it. Please um, go give us a rating yeah, on get Spotify. Just click the stars. And you can or click, Apple. Even if you hate it, click the five stars and then just tell us you didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But, like, those five stars are really helpful for us. Mm-hmm. So. Or give us five stars and then DM us and give us your critique. Yeah, because we'll we fix are it. we are open to critiques. This is not we're not like You think we think this is perfect? <laughs> no. Silly. You silly dude. We are always open to criticism. Yeah. Um constructive criticism. Yeah, if you're going to be mean, don't be mean. I can be mean back. But I probably won't be. But I could be. So be nice. If you're mean to us, like genuinely mean to us, I'll probably just block you. Yep. We have a low meanness tolerance, but we have a very high critique tolerance because we both came through theater. Yeah. People were mean to us often. Mm Mm-hmm. So, go forth. Fight bad guys with your proverbial titties out. And make male friends. Make male friends. This is your homework. This is your homework. We love you. Go have an emotionally intimate friendship. Yay. Bye.